Well, grace and peace to you this morning. We're so glad that you're here today. We want to welcome you. We have lots of visitors, and we're especially glad that you're with us. I uh, want to especially uh, welcome our brother Machona, and we're, we're so grateful that you've come our way and that you're here with us this morning. We're in a series on the book of Isaiah, and so if you have your Bible, you might be opening it to Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, that's not a song that we often sing, uh, and, and I, w- I want to say a word about that. You know, Larry was working with me this week, and he, he said, you know, what's your text? And I said, Isaiah 5, and so what kind of songs you want? And I was thinking, there's not really many songs from Isaiah 5, but if you go back and look at the opening lines from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, um, they're basically lifted from Isaiah 5. It's, it's what Isaiah 5 is talking about. And so Larry's right. We, we sometimes think of that as a patriotic song, but it's not a patriotic song at all. It's a, it's a biblical song. You know, it's, it's, it's a good one to sing. And so that's why I asked him to sing that this morning. And so let's, uh, let's hear those first seven verses, and you'll hear echoes here of things that you heard in the song. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. On a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Well, chapter 5 opens with a story about a man who plants a vineyard on a hill. And even though this is a story, it's presented in the form of a song. And not just any song, he says it's a love song. And it's essential not to overlook that that first verse, Isaiah 5.1. Because chapter 5, the whole chapter is full of judgment. And God is addressing what has gone wrong in Israel. But he begins from this position of love. He loves his people, and he wants the best for them. The the story presented in the first few verses is an intriguing one, and although many of us probably have no idea what goes into planting a vineyard, uh, this is a story I think that we can relate to. The the hills of Palestine are uh, quite rocky, and so this means the first thing the man had to do was to, to clear the field of all the rocks and stones that are there. And he would have done this all by hand. Uh, There there were no tractors or machinery in that day. And so he would have woken up every morning and gone out into the field and dug up each rock 
individually. That's hard work. You know, when I was in seventh grade, uh, my parents bought a, a piece of land, and this piece of land was, was near a creek bed, and the land was covered in rocks, and we cleared it. And it took years to complete. Uh, you know, you would see what you thought was this little rock protruding from the ground. And so you would begin to dig, only to find out that it was a boulder. And we would dig all around it, and we would wrap a chain around it, and then we would pull it out with the tractor. And we would work all day long, and it seemed like we made very little progress. But eventually, you know, we had a piece of land, had a big garden, and you would go out and you would mow, and you wouldn't hit any rocks or anything like that. It was nice. But imagine a farmer clearing a, a rocky hillside to plant a vineyard. And it may have taken a year, it may have taken longer to, to get to a point where he was ready to plant. And finally, he plants the grapevines. And guess what? It takes two years from when you plant grapevines to when you harvest the first grapes. And so while he's waiting, he, he takes those rocks where he cleared the land, he collects them, and he builds a, a watchtower. And we learn later that he builds, uh, you know, kind of a, a fence around his, his vineyard uh, to keep all the animals out. And he also builds a wine press. And so he's, he's at least three years into this project before he sees any fruit at all. And so he's invested his time, he's invested his energy, he's invested his money into his vineyard, and what does it produce? It produces wild grapes. It produces grapes that are sour. It produces grapes that are useless. We've all had experience like this where we've invested ourselves in a project that never produced what we expected. We have made sacrifices that did not lead to the outcome that we wanted. And when this happens, it's heartbreaking. You know, imagine having to abandon the land that you bought, the, the land that you worked for years, and, and you've sweated over this land, and, and now you just have to leave it. That's not an easy thing to do. And it's devastating. Well, this story tells us something about God. It begins with God's love for his people. And then it expands on this topic. And so we learn how God loves his people. You know, God's the one planting the vineyard here. And think about what he does with the vineyard. He loves his people by investing in them. And God labors for his people. And God sacrifices for his people. And God gives to his people. And when his people rebel, it breaks his heart. And this is the story of the vineyard of the Lord. It is a story of judgment. But it's much more than that. It's a story about the links that God is willing to go for us. It's a love story about the the sacrifices that God makes on our behalf. Yes, it is about judgment. 
but we must not miss out on everything that happens prior to the judgment. And so in verse 7, the, the story is explained. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. It says that the people of God are to stand for justice and righteousness. This means that we are to seek to right all wrongs. We are to treat people fairly. We are to be a voice for the voiceless. We are to care for orphans and widows. And this is what God demands of us. But when God looks here at Israel, he doesn't find any of that. He does not find justice or righteousness. Instead, what God finds is he finds violence. And what he hears is cries for help. And he's not pleased. Now the difference today is that Israel was a nation and the church is not. But that's the only difference. God still expects us as the church to act justly and to act righteously. And he still expects us to care for the needy and, and to right whatever wrongs that, that we're able to right. And the church is to be a healing presence in whatever community that it finds itself. And so we're to, we're to do good. We're, we're to seek to bless those around us. And so our neighbors, our neighbors here in LaGrange should know that we are here because of our just and righteous actions. And what God does frown upon, what he does dislike, is a community that ignores violence and a community that ignores cries for help. And so loving our neighbor means that, that we listen. It means that we pay attention. It means that we see the injustice that is happening and we acknowledge it and we try to do something about it. We don't look away from it. We do our best to try and address it. The rest of Isaiah 5 is a series of woes that, that offer further commentary on this first story here in the chapter. It offers further commentary on what's wrong in Israel. And it's amazing to look at the problems that they had and compare them to our modern times. Because when we do this, we realize that many of the problems that we face, they're not unique. You know, we often think, well, you know, we, we live in special times. You know, we're, we're, we're special. Um, that's just how every generation thinks. Uh, the, you know, we sometimes think that no one faces the challenges that we face. Uh, sometimes there are new things to address. Sometimes something new will come along. But for the most part, humanity wrestles with the same problems over and over and over again. It's not new. Notice the first woe. He says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Here is a nation 
that is devoted to consumption. They want more things. They want more possessions. They want more land. And they're bowing down to the God of materialism. And where does it leave them? It leaves them isolated and alone. They're lonely. They don't have any friends. Why? Well, because they've invested all their time and energy into things rather than people. Does this sound familiar? We struggle with the same exact thing. We are a materialistic culture. And guess what? We're facing a loneliness epidemic. And depression is on the rise, and suicide rates are on the rise, and people are lonely. And it's not new, unique. It happened back in Isaiah's time. Israel was struggling with the same problems. And we can solve these problems by getting our priorities straight. What is of more value, things or people? What should we be investing in? Investing in as individuals, investing in as maybe families, investing in as a church. Our things are not going to last for eternity, but people will. And we are creating a problem when we pay more attention to our phones than the people around us. Worse than that, we are creating a crisis, a crisis, when we pay more attention to our phones than our children. And we've forgotten how to do community. And we've forgotten how to make friends and nurture relationships. And we need to invest in one another. And you know, this is one of the reasons why we're doing care groups. Because we want to create a, a space where relationships can flourish. The Bible says in Genesis that it was not good for man to be alone. The loneliness epidemic in our country is a wrong. And we want to strive to right this wrong. And we want to be a light to this community. We want to be a light to the world. We want to show the people around us how God wants us to live and why living this way is a blessing. The, the next woe is found in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. And these are people with misguided desires. They, they wake up and they reach for a bottle. They stay up late so they can drink more. And they're not thirsting after righteousness. They're not concerned with, with being a good example to others. They're not concerned with helping those in need. They're only interested in numbing their mind and escaping from reality. Life can be hard. I get it. Um, we, we all do. We all understand how difficult life can be. But the answer to life's problems is not drugs or alcohol. Because that's only going to make your problems worse. And so we need to stand up and, and face the challenges before us rather than, than hide from them or run away from them. And the great thing about Christianity is we don't have to face these challenges on our own. And if you're struggling, please reach out to someone. Reach out to someone in the pew beside you. Reach out to one of our leaders. Reach out to myself. Reach out to someone. Because we have a family of fellow believers who want to 
uh, encourage and to help us with what, whatever we're struggling with. And this is what the church does. The prophet continues, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that we can be countercultural simply by telling the truth. But that's the world we live in today. We, we live in an era of falsehood. And it's not just the media. It's not just politicians on both sides of the aisle. It's everywhere. And we need to be a people who tell the truth. And not only that, we need to be a people who don't defend falsehood. I don't care who says it. If it's a lie, don't make excuses. Don't overlook falsehood because when we do, it only makes the problem worse. And if someone knows they can get away with falsehood, then guess what? They're going to keep doing it. Instead, we need to be a people that others can trust because they know they're going to hear an honest word from us. Finally, Isaiah calls out one of the worst offenses. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, you look at this verse and it seems impossible. How can you call evil good and good evil? But it happens. Just this last week, Brant John, the, the brother of Botham John, forgave his brother's killer. I'm sure many of you saw that. I showed it on Wednesday night. And he asked the judge if he could give her a hug, and, and the judge allowed it, which is not, it's against protocol. You're not supposed to do that. And, and many people praised this, the, the courageous actions of this 18-year-old but there were others who condemned it. And they chastised Brant and they called him out. And I understand the anger. I, I do. But we also need to understand that Brant did what was right. And we should not call good evil. And there are people in our world who openly celebrate sinful lifestyles. And you see it all the time. It doesn't matter whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's vulgarity, whether it's drunkenness, cheating, whatever. You know, it's, it's everywhere. And God says there is something seriously wrong when morality gets turned upside down. And we're getting to see what it's like to live in a world where evil is called good and good is called evil. And it's not pleasant. It's not desirable. And it's sad to see good despised and, and evil celebrated. It, it, it's heartbreaking to see good people mocked and, and ridiculed for doing what they should be doing. And the church needs to be a place that, that lives out the moral code that we find in Scripture. It's something that has attracted people to the church for years and years to come. I know people say it won't nowadays, but it will. 
It'll keep working. It's powerful. And we need to consistently remind people of how God wants us to live. And we don't do this to be judgmental. We don't do it to look down upon people. And and if that's our intent, then that's just as wrong as what everybody else is doing. But we do it because people are hurt when evil is celebrated and good is mocked. And, And it's not good for us. It's not good for our children. It's not good for our grandchildren. It's not good for society. It's not good for the world. Following God blesses our lives. And living in open rebellion to God, it only leads to disaster. And so we follow the moral code we find in the Bible because we love God. But we also follow it because we love our neighbors, because we love our families, and because we want the very best for them. Isaiah 5 should have been a a wake-up call for Israel. It was an invitation for them to examine their actions, to repent, and to live how God wanted them to live. But we've been given this text today, and it's God's word to us. And it should accomplish the same thing that it was intended for long ago. We should read this chapter and we should examine our own lives. And if we're not living accordingly, then then we should repent and we should turn back to God. And most importantly, we should commit to living as God would have us to live. We should be a light to the people around us and we should invite them to live in such a way that blesses their lives and makes their lives better and makes the lives of their children and grandchildren better. God does not require perfection, but God does require that we commit ourselves to godliness. He requires that we strive after what is good and just and righteous. And he calls us to be like Christ and to act in Christ-like ways. We're going to stumble and we're going to fall along the way. We're not perfect people. But thankfully, we have a a Christian family to lift us up. And we know with confidence that the blood of Jesus Christ covers our shortcomings. And we're saved by the grace of God. And so may our hearts be pricked by the words of the prophet. May we be revived by this message, and may we seek to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for a challenging word. And we pray, Father, that this word penetrates our hearts. We pray that we hear it clearly. And we pray that we respond appropriately. May we live just and righteous lives. Father, we recognize that we live in a fallen world, but may we seek to right as many wrongs as we can right. And may we not turn a blind eye to injustice, but instead to speak truth 
everywhere we go. We're so thankful for your son who lived this life as an example for us. And we pray that we would be more like him each and every day and that we would be a light to this community and that they would know our presence because of our love for them and because of our good deeds. We're so thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. We pray this in his name. Amen.